one of the most recent times I taught it, one of the students' design goals was to um, design and, and make a hopper that fully embodies the concept sproing. <laughs> and so, and if you had seen this, this kid's design, you would have just said, yeah. nailed it. And welcome back to This Should Work. This is episode 18 with Aaron Hoover. Aaron is an associate professor of mechanical engineering at Olin College. He is also one of the people who helps run the Higher Education Makerspace Initiative, as well as the International Symposium on Academic Makerspaces. So I'm really excited to have Aaron on today to kick off a series that we're going to be doing here at This Should Work over the next several weeks on educational makerspaces. We're going to be interviewing people from universities, K-12 institutions. Um, we're going to be interviewing folks from museums everywhere. And uh, I hope that this kind of gives you a window into how um, we all think about uh, makerspaces in different educational areas. So um, really excited to have Aaron on. I hope you enjoy this episode. And as always, if you do, please do all the social media things that people ask for all the time. Like, subscribe, leave us a comment on iTunes and check out our website at shouldworkmedia.com. All right, here we go. And we'll jump right into it. Okay. So I'm talking with uh, Aaron Hoover today. Um, this is episode 18 of This Should Work. And uh, Aaron is, amongst many other things, a founding member of uh, ISAM and HEMI. Um, Aaron teaches at Olin College. He has a background in mechanical engineering. Is that correct? I think. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and so you've got a, like a, a really wide, diverse range of interests that I want to I want to dive into today from from milli robots um, <laughs> to makerspaces to to higher ed makerspaces and and everything in between. Um, but but thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I just want to start off by giving you props for the name of this podcast. Uh, it's a it's a phrase that just captures so much in just a few words, right? The sort of hopefulness that you experience <laughs> when you're trying to solve a problem. And, you know, you sort of utter, well, this should work, but it's all, there's a little bit of like, it's a tenuous moment, right? Where, where right. you're expecting something. And I, I love it just, it kind of like, it's got a great energy to it. So I think that's fantastic. I appreciate that. You know, the image it evokes to me is there's a scene in, I think it's Ocean 11, Ocean's 11, maybe 12, where they're about to set off an electromagnetic pulse. Um, and, uh, the, the guy who's holding the, the button to set it off, they've got this huge machine in this van, in the back of a van. And he's holding this button that's about to set it off. And he kind of cringes and, you know, grabs himself and looks to the side and then hits the button. And that's kind of the, <laughs> to me, that's the image it evokes is kind of this, uh, uh, well, devil may care kind of <laughs> let's see what happens sort of attitude, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so the way I usually like to kick this off is uh, with, a, with, with a question that, you, you know, uh, is is somewhat unrelated, but somewhat related to, to everything else we're going to talk about. And that's, um, you know, what are the personal projects that you're working on? And so that would be stuff that, that doesn't necessarily have to do with with what you're doing at Olin, um, doesn't necessarily have to do with your research work, just something that you're working on um, because it scratches an itch, something that you're working on because it, it's it, it's your hobby, you're interested in it. And it's not just for everybody. It's not for everybody else. It's, it's for you. Sure. Yeah. There, um, there are actually kind of two projects that are running in, in parallel right now. I am formally, officially on sabbatical from my Olin responsibilities, so gives me an excuse to kind of disconnect from the institution and do things like crazy things like ignore email. Um, and as part of that, <laughs> yeah. basically, I've been been working on two projects. One project is. Yeah, it's a it's an itch itch scratching project for myself and really for no one else, but um, an excuse to get back into something that I just really thoroughly enjoyed in graduate school and kind of felt that it was ridiculous that I was able to get credit for it toward a sort of minor and <laughs> uh, you know and yeah. have so much fun with it. Which was in graduate school, I took a course called procedural solid modeling um, and another course called computer aided geometric design. And the procedural solid modeling course was really about in what situations is it appropriate to generate solid models of things using code rather than using the standard 
sort of human interactions that you would have with the computer via a mouse and a keyboard, et cetera, like by manipulating in three dimensions a model and and kind of mimicking the manufacturing operations to generate something. So things like extrusions and and um, and cuts and sweeps and lofts and and uh, and shells. Uh, and so it was this fun, really fun class where we explored through projects generating solid models simply by by writing code. And in some cases, there were ways of interacting with the code through a user interface, but um, but the model was sort of generated for you. And so the way that that ties into the project that I'm doing now, um, and at the time, the project that I did for that course was this bizarre, you can find it online, this bizarre model that I made physical called the Mobius gear, which is if you can imagine a Mobius strip with gear teeth <laughs> on the one continuous surface, um, and then a sort of a structure that goes around it that lets you put a small gear in between the strip and this external structure. It's this bizarre contorted planetary gear train. I, I sort of generated that as part of that class. And so that was really fun. And it kind of got some attention on the, on the internet. And so getting back into this idea of procedural solid modeling, I've been tackling writing features in, um, a piece of CAD software, web-based CAD software called Onshape, writing features that generate joints between, um, you know, typically like wood joints between pieces in a piece of furniture or any kind of design um, automatically. So uh, the feature, for example, you say, okay, I want to join these two boards at a right angle. Um, and there are, you know, half a dozen ways of doing this. I can go in and just overlap these two boards at 90 degrees and then click this feature button and select a few parameters of the feature and it'll generate, uh, you know, sort of joint there. And specifically, these are joints that can be made using CNC routers. So computer controlled routers, um, meaning that they're kind of machined in two dimensions um, by a router bit. And and so you can do things sort of like approximations of dovetails or finger joints or, th or things like that. Um, and it was, so that's, that's a project that's been consuming a lot of my time during sabbatical for fun. Um, mostly because I'm, I'm friends with one of the co-founders of Onshape. And for years now, he's been telling me, oh, you've got to check out this great ability called FeatureScript to, um, to write features that are native to the CAD software. And uh, he had seen the stuff I'd done with the Mobius gear and other kind of ridiculous projects and said, oh, you'd love this. And so um, so I wanted to, to create these features that let you automatically generate joinery. And then you can you know, put a sheet of plywood down on a CNC router and, and, um, and cut these joints out. And so it's kind of like, you know, um, adding a layer of sophistication to software that makes it easier to make something for, for someone who isn't necessarily interested in all the details of how to design these joints, but wants to make something at a, at a higher level quickly. What, what do you expect people are going to do with that? Do, or do you not have any expectations? I mean, I know there's like open source furniture, for instance. Um, you know, there's all, all sorts of different uh, potential applications, but uh, are there any hopes uh, or <laughs> aspirations <laughs> for what you, what, what outcomes you see from something like this? You know, the great, thing about this project is I actually went into it with zero expectation. It was for me, it was about learning um, it was learning this feature script language that that onshape makes available yeah. and getting back into the mindset of you know kind of thinking about the intersection of the physical and and code essentially and and yeah. so it was really just it was a learning project for me mostly and it's been really fun to post about it on the forums and to get people's feedback and um i'd love to see you know there there are a number of resources out there for making sort of like cnc furniture um you know in in the sort of make ecosystem there's a book from a, a, a couple of architects, Filson and Rohrbacher, you know, furniture design for CNC. I'd love to see elements of this project potentially, you know, getting uh, getting noticed by those types of projects. But that certainly was never the the original goal. Yeah. And you, you also mentioned when you were describing it that it would closely emulate 
but not not um, uh, joints that you would make, I guess, without a, a CNC mill. Um, I, I wonder what that means, or you know, because it seems like you, uh, to me, you're saying you know whatever the, the the router is going to to cut out of a piece of plywood or whatever is is going to be close, but not um, perfect to what you could do if you're handcrafting. Uh, you know these the the joinery, right? The, I mean, the router has specific limitations. Um, you know that that working by hand, uh, you don't necessarily have. And so, for example, for folks who are familiar with dovetail joints, there there are these sort of angled surfaces that are that are a part of that. And and um, the router requires that you you're machining from overhead, and it's a vertical bit that's cutting and so you're kind of limit you can't for example do things like um overhangs or what we might call undercuts uh you know without special setups or potentially flipping your workpiece over and having to realign it and things like that so you know the fact that it's it's a sort of what we might call two and a half d process means that the geometry that you can generate with it is certainly more constrained than the geometry that you can generate working by hand with saws and chisels. Yeah. One of, one of my colleagues who I also interviewed for this, Nate Matson, um, refers to it as uh, like almost tectonics. So like the, the invisible undercurrents that contribute to the end product mm. um, that, that influence the, the, the object, but that you don't, you don't see. Right. And, and I think that there's a lot of writing about this in the making area too, where you have, you know, a mold, for instance, or, you know, pressed concrete where you've got this object that um, impresses itself on the final product, but that is, is invisible, right? It's no longer existent. I find that, I don't know, there's something interesting about that to me. I, that's, I that's a really wonderful concept. And I think, you know, it, it um, you can see that in all forms of making and manufacturing, right? Um the other day, my son was sitting at breakfast and we had a sort of jug, a plastic jug of maple syrup sitting out and he saw a feature on the, on the outside of the jug. And it was probably, you know, if I had to speculate, it's probably like from an ejector pin, you know, to push the, the jug out of the mold. Uh, it's probably a blow molded jug. Um, and he was just like fascinated by it. And he's six years old and he's asking me, what is this and why is it here? And why does it have this texture? You know, and it's like um, it's 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 great to have that moment of sort of curiosity and connecting up this very mundane object with the process of creation and, and how things are made. Um, and once you start to know, once you get a little bit of knowledge about those things, I remember one of the very first mechanical engineering courses I took they passed around all these different plastic products and had us speculate on how we thought they were made. And once you start to see the little hints and clues, you know, that reveal, as you say, the sort of tectonics, um, it's kind of, it kind of opens you up to this whole new world, uh, which I think is, is really fun if you're just sort of curious and paying attention. And it's funny, I'm sitting in front of an Apple product right now in front of an iMac and looking at it and, and, uh, I almost feel like Apple goes to insane lengths to eliminate those <laughs> those right. features, right? So that you cannot tell how it's made or assembled, right? Which is which is interesting. I mean, there's an aesthetic to that, but um, yeah, no, that's it's something that um, I like to talk about when when talking to my students about complex systems and systems thinking. Is is that by like tinkering with things and taking them apart? you tend to get closer to this, this understanding that everything around you is, is made and it, and, and that you can change it as a result, right? It's mutable. And, um, it's amazing when you talk about Apple products, I, I use like a, their phones as an example of something that is an extremely complex system. That's very difficult for us to understand now, but you can, you can abstract out and, and certainly kind of start scratching at that a little bit, but, um, that's, so you said you had a, a second project that you're working on too. Yeah, uh, the second project is is entirely a personal project. I, for many years, have wanted a shop space of my own. And you know, about seven years ago, uh, my wife and I moved into this into the house that we're in right now in, in Boston. And I've got a, a sort of a decent basement, <laughs> but I've never really put any effort into into turning it into a shop. And so, um, 
I used the sabbatical excuse, the sort of the time that I have to begin to work on that. And I started, the problem is it has a just a, a miserable concrete floor. I think as many New England basements probably do that, you know, a floor that was poured in five or six different <laughs> installments, you know, and uh, cracked and broken and has huge chunks of concrete emerging from it. And so huh. I decided I was going to, uh, was actually going to level the floor. And so it was this crazy process of laying out two by fours at, at 16 inch spacing and, and leveling them all to the same height. And then essentially scribing the profile of the floor onto the two by four, yeah. cutting off the waste and then nailing down the two by four and then laying down, um, you know, some panels like plywood or oriented strand board on top of the two by fours and getting a really nice smooth wood floor that I can, then you know, put machines on and move them around and things like that. So that's about, I would say, three quarters of the way finished. And that has been, that's a project for me that's about sort of making space um, right. and creating a space that feels good for me to be in where I want to, where I want to spend time. That's so, funny. You, you do that. It's, it's kind of like the, um, what's the saying that the cobbler's kids have no shoes sort of thing. Like you make, you, you spend your time making space for, for other people, um, you know, uh, in your professional world, but then you go home and there's very little space for you to do it right. you know, where, where you're at. So it's, right. it's, it's this constant thing that I see with a lot of, a lot of people who I, I talk with on this, this podcast is, is, um, you know, they're always doing things for other people. I mean, even your first example where you're working on, on shape, um, that's still like an application that other people can use. So it's nice to hear that you've, you found, <laughs> you know, <laughs> some project for yourself. And that's also interesting because it's like a dramatically different scale, it seems, than a lot of the other work that you do. Um, right. And and so I wonder if there's a, have you, is it a different way of, it must be a similar way of thinking, but is it, have you um, kind of not unlocked, but kind of started to practice these things that you haven't done in a while? Or is, is this, um, I don't know where I'm going with this. Sure. No, I like it. I like it. Um, it's funny. I, you know, someone, I have a colleague uh, at Babson college who teaches entrepreneurship and, and I've been kind of talking to him about the project and he's like, ah, he's like, you're, you know, I have great confidence. You'll do a good job. You're an engineer. And I think in it's in these sort of trade contexts, um, the engineering mind is almost, or the sort of engineering mind that we're taught to cultivate is almost detrimental because mm. I will fixate on details that ultimately are, wind up being totally inconsequential right <laughs> um and and it takes me back in thinking about that it takes me back to a concept from david pye's the nature and art of workmanship which is the sort of the quality of the workmanship is intimately intertwined with the scale at which it's perceived right, right. and he talks about um you know if you've got a column that's 10 meters high or something. Uh, and you know, you're, you're perceiving it. You're meant to perceive that from a hundred feet or 200 feet or however far away. Um, the detail of like the surface finish on the column does not matter at all. Right. Um, mm -hmm. now if it's a degree or two off, you know, from vertical that, that might be noticeable, but it's kind of like, a sort of craftsperson develops an understanding of this, this, the level of detail at which they need to work based on kind of the, the scale of the project. Um, yeah. And so, so I think that, uh, that sort of idea has really stuck with me from that book um, and has helped me get perspective on, you know, how much attention I'm paying to details in different projects that, that I'm working on physical projects specifically. Um, and you mentioned earlier that, you know, I, I came from, you know, my graduate research was primarily in robotics and sort of at the millimeter scale, fabricating um, robotic structures nominally inspired by insects. And at that scale, you know, it's like working under a microscope and with feature sizes that are like, you know, a hundred or 200 microns. And, and so it, that really developed in me a very careful sort of approach to, you know, attention to detail, I guess. Yeah. Um, and well, can, can you give an example of something where you're working in your basement 
and you've 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 just gone down the rabbit hole. Is there <laughs> is there is there something where you know your engineering brain kicked in and and started toying away at this thing? And did you pull back then and go, okay, well maybe maybe this is, this is isn't isn't the appropriate time for this, or or is it is it just kind of generally speaking, you you, you know you've been um, uh, you've been thinking about this as you're as you're working on, on your yeah. Part. It's I mean, there's a couple different examples. One example is I have um, you know, there are mechanicals in my basement, and then it, the house is over a hundred years old. So at some point, someone uh, decided they needed to add a bunch of support columns because the floors probably felt too bouncy, and so there are a lot of uh, a lot of things structures that I need to cut um, the the panels to accommodate, right? So I've got to like make cutouts and I've got to figure out where seams go to, you know, fit around a column and things like that. And the walls are are also field stone. So it's, you know, these big giant rocks and, you know, they're not like nice flat cinder block walls or poured concrete walls. And so, you know, it's sort of like agonizing for a while. Oh, I've got to, when I put these panels down, I need to scribe the profile of the wall so that it, you know, and it's, you realize uh, like, no, you don't, you don't need to do that because ultimately if you're going to build a vertical wall, you know, that two by four <laughs> plate that you put down is going to be along a straight line. So right. it really doesn't matter if behind it, you know, the panel is perfectly scribed to the profile of the wall or, you know, if the spacing around this column, you know, of the, that you cut the panel around is precisely, you know, a half an inch. It's it's like, you just need to get it in there and fit it together. Right. But then at the same time, when you're laying out these big panels, if, if they're slightly skewed on the, on the, the support joists over a distance, right. You will wind up <laughs> without, you know, in a, in a scenario where you don't have support for one of the edges. Right. So, right. Um, so there are certain details that are very important to pay attention to and others that you should just completely tune out. And so that's, that's kind of an interesting caveat there. Yeah, that's it. You know, I'm, I'm, I don't know why I'm thinking of Mies van der Rohe and like some of his architectural work, um, where the details that he, it, it's, it's like he somehow figured out how to, um, uh, build, uh, buildings at scale, uh, and, and yet it, in congruence with that, uh, still focus on certain details. I don't know if you, but I mean, he's a, I'm kind of fascinated with his architecture and I was turned on to him by a couple of colleagues. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's just interesting to me, the the mind that figures out as well, you know, it's probably like an artisan, right. Who figures out how to approach their craft at scale, but then also um, zoom in on specific details that are just that, you know, Nobody who didn't, if you didn't appreciate it and you weren't looking for it, you probably wouldn't notice, but that was important um, to them. So I don't don't know where I'm headed with that, but I, I do have something that I want to talk about, which is um, I did, I, I guess I'll call it online stalking, but not really uh, <laughs> about some of um, some of the, the courses that you you teach as well. Sure. And there's there's one that I was I was really fascinated by, and it's because it seems like it also touches on um, some of your work in and let me see if I get this right bio inspired robotic locomotion. Um, but there's a course called Design Nature, where you take nature as a source of inspiration to develop bio inspired ideas into functional prototypes. And so it's almost it's kind of like what we were just talking about, where you're taking this this messiness, right? This this thing um, outside of, of engineering and you have to kind of cope with that and, and put a process around that to, to develop an end product. Um, can you tell me, tell me a little, I, I'm just curious a little bit about that course. Why did, is, is that something that um, maybe it's not a course that you care about at all. I have no idea. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. But, I, yeah. Um, so it's not, it's not a course that I created. Um, it's a course that existed at Olin when I got there, but it is, um, it's really interesting. It's a first year course. It's, and it's taught in the first semester of the first year. So, um, you know, it has a few different goals. One is to expose students to a design process and ultimately to help them understand that there is not necessarily one right answer to, um, to most problems as they're posed. And that what's important is engaging a process 
intensively, authentically. Um, and that process for, for us in that course is, is about sort of going from sketching to sketch modeling, which is sort of a, what you might think of as a 3d version of sketching, you know, with blue foam or pink foam, popsicle sticks, rubber bands, whatever you have at hand, right. Um, to get a sense of, of the idea that you're trying to, to create and then prototyping and functional prototyping. And, uh, the course is broken up into a couple different projects. Um, the first project is uh, is an individual project, and it students have to build a hopping mechanism. And nominally, it it should be inspired by some some type of um, organism that hops. And we give them examples. They read a couple of research papers on insects, frog hoppers, click beetles. Um, to get exposure to a few different ways that that nature solves this problem, <laughs> um, and then they they actually even go out in the in the woods around Olin and try to find examples of hopping insects and sketch them, um, and start to at least at a at a very sort of course level connect up the physics of hopping, so how you exert force against the ground and how that reaction force you know propels something into the air, how you store energy in a system, et cetera. And then, you know, once they've kind of read the papers and, um, and done some sketching, we take them through a sketch modeling and prototyping process using different materials. And, you know, at the end of that project, we have this great day of fanfare called Hopper Day. <laughs> and, um, and, every, and so this is every student in the first year class, which is a, normally about 85 students. So they're typically distributed across three different sections that all run at the same time. But each studio celebrates Hopper Day by, you know, every student, it's a sort of stand and deliver moment where every student has to set up their hopper, which they've been given a kind of a kit of materials that they're allowed to use. Um, and they get to do some laser cutting as a as a result, or I mean, as a process for manufacturing. And um, every student gets three minutes to come to a table at the front of class and set up their hopper and have it trigger and and see how high it hops. Um, but they also, interestingly, as part of the project, there we ask them to re- to write a design goal um, that's not merely sort of technocratic, right? Like the goal isn't, well, I want to make the hopper that hops the highest or hops right. the farthest. They want, you know, um, the most, one of the most recent times I taught it, one of the students design goals was to um, design and, and make a hopper that fully embodies the concept sproing. <laughs> and so, and if you had seen this, this kid's design, you would have just said, yeah. nailed it, you know, just nailed right, it. Right. Right? And so, um, <laughs> And, and, and so we asked them to, to de- develop a design goal of their own. And then their peers also get to say, you know, when they, when they demonstrate their hopper, their peers get to say whether they think they, you know, a- accomplished their design goal or if there's still more, more work to be done. Um, and so that's the first project. And it's really fun. Um, you know, I think students really enjoy it. It can be profoundly frustrating sometimes, you know, just coming up with a design goal even by itself, like going through this prototyping process. But, um, but it's a, I think it's a great introduction to design. And then the second project is a team project where we ask them to, in groups to pick, and there's a process for voting and all that, to pick an, an animal or an organism that they find interesting and propose a play experience. They're going to design a play experience for um, uh. fourth graders nine, 10 year olds, um, maybe fifth graders, uh, design a play experience inspired by, uh, by that particular animal. And they get, you know, I think it's something like, uh, eight by 10 foot sort of square in which they can lay out and run their play experience. Um, and you know, they have a budget, they can purchase materials and supplies and, um, and then, you know, the next sort of like eight weeks of the class are really them developing the story behind this play experience and trying to do something immersive. Um, but that it also is fun and educational for the for the kids who visit. And so that is 
on the day of you know the final event, when all of these play experiences are assembled and distributed throughout the hallways at Olin, and these you know sort of eight year olds, eight nine year olds are running through the <laughs> the halls playing these games, it's it's um, it's a wild <laughs> sort right. of sensory overload. Um, right. And so you know, I, one one team that I who was in my studio a couple of years ago, they were really excited about the archer fish, which I don't know if you know anything about this fish, but it, um, it can spit water. It can come to the surface and spit water at leaves or, you know, sort of, um, anything that's overhanging the water to try to knock bugs off of the foliage and have them fall to the surface. And then they eat the bugs. <laughs> and so there's, you know, a team that had developed this archer fish experience where, you know, the, the kids playing their game had to wiggle around on their backs and they had this sort of like blow gun that could fire these, um, these little puff balls at leaves and try to knock bugs down and they got a score. And so, um, yeah, so the, it's really great to see what these first year students come up with um, and then how they try to make it as immersive and compelling as possible. So, yeah, um, it's going to yeah. be so rewarding to see um, other, other kids uh playing you know it, it's not just like you are um creating this project for the class and then maybe your peers see it or, or your professor sees it but but nobody else does right it almost embodies that constructionist thinking uh, uh where you you know it's not just enough to make the thing um, by yourself you have to share it too right you have to to put that experience in front of other people and and that's that's pretty cool and i so i don't i, I don't know if i've told you this or uh, anything, but, um, my background and the reason I, I started at DePaul was, um, uh, I'm a game designer. Um, and, and that's one of the things that I tie to a lot of my practice in making is I feel like making is just, is another form of play, uh, and playfulness. And so there are kind of two things that, as you were, you were talking there that, that, um, uh, that I kind of want to dive into. And, and one is the, the play experience thing. But the second one is you mentioned that it's not the, the, the course, it, it doesn't take like a technocratic approach um, to the design of things. And as I look through a lot of your work, you know, the, the bio-inspired robotic locomotion, but also when, when, when I was reading about, um, you know, the, the, the millibots that you were working on, uh, you know, you're talking about origami or when we're talking about joinery, you're talking about, um, you know, you know, the physical workmanship as well. And so there seems to be this, this, um, I don't want to call it attention, but there, there seems to be these two things, right? You have this engineering background, but then a lot of your work seems to be inspired by um, hand, the, the handcrafted or the, or the natural thing, world. Um, and, and I wonder if you could t talk a little bit more, more about that and, and maybe why, you know, what is it that um, inspires you from these kind of natural things versus, you know, uh, the, 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 as, as we were mentioning before, the technocratic world? Um, mm -hmm. and if, if it, it, maybe I'm making a, a poor assumption here too, but if there's a thread that kind of runs through a lot of your work that has to do with that, I'd like to hear more about it. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Uh, I think, um, let me noodle on that a little bit. The... Yeah, the, the, the bio inspiration, I think, is the deeper you get. And I'm, you know, by no means a biologist. Um, you know, I, in graduate school, um, you know, took some courses, some, some sort of integrative biology courses, really learning about biology more at the level of, you know, the whole organisms and not, you know, sort of cells or, or um, you know, microbiology kind of concepts. Um, I think the deeper that you get or the more that you learn about the unbelievable performance of, of animals and, and even, you know, not, not limited necessarily to animals, but I, you know, in, in robotics, that's kind of where I tended to focus. Um, I think the more compelling it is to think about using the sort of underlying concepts principles from that that and strategies that nature appears to employ to in in sort of engineered systems um at least for me in, in robotics there was just a sort of sense of like it's almost 
it's sort of both awe and frustration, right? That that these systems that you're looking at are so incredibly capable, and then you go back to try to try to make something or engineer something, and, and it's and it's profoundly humbling what you can do compared to to what nature has done over right. the sort of millions of years of evolution. Right. As an example, you know we. Um, being interested in insects and specifically in legged locomotion, we looked a lot at, at cockroaches and, um, you know, there's some evidence out there that cockroaches, you know, that can, there are cockroaches that can run over terrain where the sort of largest obstacle or asperity of the terrain is, you know, two or three times their height. Right. Um, and there's some evidence that they do it without, actively adjusting the sort of neural signals that they're sending to certain muscles that they use to, to activate their legs, um, which is just astounding, right? There's this kind of this idea that this cockroach is running you know, open loop, if you will, right? It's not thinking at every moment that it sets one of its hind legs down um, and, you know, adjusting how it's controlling that leg. It's just kind of like firing these signals off in a, in a very specific pattern, and, and some properties of its body, you know, its musculature, how it stores and returns energy to the environment enables it to go over these crazy obstacles. Um, and so that was kind of eye-opening for me. Um, and so that, you know, I think it's just a, it's a matter of being in awe of, of what nature has been able to do and, and recognizing that if we can study those principles and it can be really challenging, right, to figure out when you're instantiating a principle versus when you're just copying something. There are a lot of there are right. a lot of pitfalls there, um, in, specifically in the sort of bio-inspired world. How do you? But, um, go yeah, ahead. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, it's okay. I, I, I'm I'm interested in how you go about. Um, I forget how you phrased it. Uh, how you go about understanding or, or developing an understanding of how these things work. Because in, in some ways, at least, it seems very similar to me to um, understanding how other organic things work. So so not necessarily um, a cockroach, but, you know, uh, with, um, with just for example, wood, wood has a specific grain. It wants to be cut in a specific way. And so you kind of have to develop an understanding of the material. And if you think of other organic things as kind of like a material as well, that you have to understand how they flow um, and, and how that system works. Uh, it's, it's almost kind of this experience that I, I see connecting with a lot of um, making projects, which is it's, it's externalizing your thought process um, rather than, you know, um, having all the baggage of, of, of uh, you know, this subject object mentality where, um, uh, you know, everything around us is based on perception and therefore it's all subjective and, and so on and so forth. But the, the second you're working with an insect or the second you're working with wood or anything else, it wants to work its way, not the way that you want it to work. And, <laughs> you know, and, and so is there, how, how do you go about understanding that material flow? Um, you know, whether it's in the insect or, or the, 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 or origami even, which it would be a, a, another interesting complex system to kind of un try to understand what is the, what's the process that you approach, approach those, um, those objects with? Yeah. Wow. That's a, that's an interesting question. I think it's important to make a distinction between um, sort of material, you know, passive sort of material, like you might encounter in origami, let's say, or wood, um, it's passive in the sense that, uh, you know, when it sits there, it's not, it's not doing anything until you interact with it. Right. Whereas with an organism, you know, it's got, it's, it's got its own sort of prime directives, whether you're there or not, they might change when you, when you arrive, but it's also, it's a much more complex system. And so in the case of the bio inspiration stuff that, that I was interested in, um, you know, in grad school and kind of early career, for me really and and this may may not be the most inspiring answer but it was it was being open and curious and talking to experts you know getting connected to biologists who had deep knowledge of these things and finding ways in which my engineering knowledge might be complementary to them um but 
really just trying to soak up as much knowledge from them and from the work that they were publishing as possible. Um, and I was really lucky at when I was at Berkeley to be, uh, you know, the 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 integrative biology group there was really fantastic um, and very collaborative, and even you know created some courses specifically for biologists and engineers to to collaborate. And so um, there's a little bit of a barrier that you have to get over in terms of you know sometimes you feel like you're not speaking the same language, but that's because every discipline at its sort of like most rarefied levels has has you know language that's almost meant to do that intentionally, right? You know, to right. demonstrate that you're a member of the club. Right. And, and if you don't understand it, then, you know, you weren't, you're not cut right. out for it yet. And so a, there was, a, there was a lot of that. To, what's that? I said, it's a shibboleth. Uh, shibboleth. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and so, yeah, collaboration in that case, I think with the, with the sort of more, um, more passive things like just material understanding, it's for me, it's about sort of curiosity and experimentation. Um, and I, if you don't, if you haven't heard of this, this person yet, you should absolutely check out, um, a film about him, uh, a gentleman named Ron Resch. Um, okay. he has, a, there's a film, I believe it's called paper and stick. Um, and I think you can find it on Vimeo. He ha- did, amazing work early on uh, with paper folding and um, these sort of computational, what ultimately became computational forms, but he explored them from uh, just a perspective of raw curiosity. And the whole film starts with him like folding, crumpling paper, and then kind of noticing, he's like, wow, when I crumple paper, I noticed that these lines kind of consistently seem to intersect at these angles. And he kind of just from there, explores this really um, rich space of, of folding and kind of um, generative design with some very simple rules. Um, and, and so I think, you know, the same is true with, with wood is like a willingness to, to kind of play and experiment and say, well, what happens if I do this? And what happens if I, if I do that? Cause there's not really anything on the line. I mean, with an, with an organism, you can't, necessarily do that i mean there are protocols for for how you have to how you have to treat organisms and insects because they're invertebrates the protocols are much less restrictive but sure um nonetheless it's a living thing right and you have to you have to sort of take care with how you interact with it so i think but with you know sort of material you know it's all about that sort of what if mindset and and seeing what happens when you when you try something that might even seem ill-advised, right? Right. So. Yeah. No. What I what I find interesting, you know, the, the, I guess the comparison I'm I'm drawing between, and I get what you're saying, but <laughs> between um insects and and other organisms, but but also ma- other materials is, um, you know, Graham Harmon, um, who's actually he got his grad degree from DePaul, but he's a he's a philosopher, um, who's at the center of this um this relatively new philosophy uh called object-oriented ontology. Um, he gives an example where he talks about how, um, a flame, uh, when it engulfs, um, like a, like a, a, a piece of cottonwood, right. Um, experiences certain qualities of that cottonwood, but it, not all of them. Right. And so it understands, um, whatever it needs to understand to burn that piece, but it doesn't understand perhaps the, the smell of the thing. Right. And, and so the point he's making is that we perceive, Um, certain qualities of objects around us, uh, but there are potentially a multitude of other qualities that those things, um, that those, those things embody that, that we just do not understand. And so there's um, the point he's getting at is there's this, this, there is a reality um, outside of our own perception. It's just, sometimes it's, it's inaccessible to us or it's difficult to get to. And so I, I, you know, I, when I, when I'm talking about these different things and calling them objects, what I'm really thinking about is like, what are the, qualities of of these other external things that um they might that they uh, might bring to a a deeper or richer understanding of of the world around us um outside of our own minds right uh because of you know of course we have all these preconceived notions about how things are going to work 
um, which is kind of what this whole podcast is about. <laughs> uh, and then you actually engage with reality and it tells you, I'd rather not do that, you know? Um, and so that's, um, that, you know, that's, it's just fascinating to me to hear about all of these kind of externalities that, um, that everybody's engaging with. You mentioned for the second time, um, playfulness. And so, um, you know, the first time was when you were talking about, uh, you know, the nine-year-olds or, or whatever mm-hmm. else engaging with these, um, you know, these creations that your students make. Uh, and, and so I wonder if there's, um, I certainly see something, but I don't want to seed this conversation with my own preconceptions. What is the, do you draw any connection between playfulness, um, and, and craft and making, uh, and, and what is that connection to you? Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic question. I, um, so I did my undergrad at Stanford and it was, you know, um, at a time when IDEO was becoming pretty well established to the point where, you know, I decided, of course, when I graduated, I wanted to go work at IDEO. Um, And then, you know, I don't know if it's a myth or not, but this notion that you had to have like 10 recommendations from IDEO employees to get an interview is sort of like, okay, that's not happening. Um, But uh, at Stanford, you know, I do remember one of the things that stuck with me about the kind of the elements of the design curriculum was this phrase, the serious purpose of play. And, Mm. um, I think play and, and learning are kind of inextricable uh, and play is how children learn, you know, until some point when someone tells them, okay, no, how you have to learn is by sitting down in this formal setting and, um, you know, taking notes or whatever it is. And so uh, I see play as kind of essential to the to the making process and to um you know even just to realizing your ideas and it's funny um we haven't talked about this yet but over the summer i this past summer i i took a a course at the center for furniture craftsmanship in in maine um in rockport maine that was a 12-week furniture making intensive and we had a series of projects that we that we had to work on and every project began with do you know quote unquote doing design and it was really striking to me to see there were about 12 of us other students approach approaches to design that were just very much like well i'm just going to start trying something you know i'm going to grab some pieces of plywood and i'm going to cut some shapes or i'm going to grab some cardboard and, you know, just tape it together and get a sense of, and, and I think I'm reminded of my son and he has these, he has these foam floor tiles, you know, um, that he just assembles in so many different ways and makes them into, you know, robot costumes and forts and, you know, trains and whatever it is that, that is on his mind at the moment. And I think that, um, I think that that uh, the ability to kind of get loose early on in a process is mm-hmm. really critical to an outcome that you know you're happy with at at the end and it's something that I really struggle with personally um mm. I think coming from a, a more traditional sort of engineering background that says okay you need to lay out what you're what your performance requirements are and how your, you know, your design is going to meet these particular specifications. And then, you know, it's a very linear process and play play ultimately should be super nonlinear. Um, and so I think there, there's, there's a tension there and being open to kind of yeah going through a lot of loops is really important. Yeah, I'm reminded of, uh, so I've, I've, for the last five years, we've run a, a maker fest uh, around where I live. Um, and um, every time I run it, uh, you know, we've got all these cool exhibitors and all these hands-on activities. Um, and, you know, parents will come with their kids and the kids will run up to, you know, these hands-on booths. Um, but what you'll see before that happens is like the parent go, oh, you should go check that out. And then the, the, the you know, the child comes up to the booth and then the parent who's ultimately probably the one who is actually curious about this <laughs> um, <laughs> sometimes will then come up and, and use their, their children as an excuse um, to engage in kind of that playful activity. But they're, 
there's that hesitance and there's that use of the child in order to um, excuse them, uh, you know, to, to play. Similarly, I'm, I'm reminded um, maybe two, maybe three summers ago, um, I created this certification program for Caterpillar. And I, it's essentially a certification on making. So the big yellow truck company with all these engineers um, and Caterpillar faces, I mean, a lot of different problems right now. Um, but what the, the problem that this was trying to address was uh, exactly what you're talking about, where you have a lot of engineers who think linearly. Um, but of course, because Caterpillar is in, in, in this um, space now where uh, a lot of their products are experiencing, they're, they're getting into this digital physical convergence, right? Um, and so there's an immense amount of new things happening in their industry and they're learn- they, they need to, to become adaptive. Um, that linear uh, way of thinking doesn't necessarily work anymore. And so, I mean, you, you know, I, I, I noticed these patterns all around kind of that you alluded to, but what is it that makes us, when do we lose that? What, what is the, and how do you, how do you regain that? And how do you, how do you also, because a lot of your, you know, your, your work, at least through ISAM and HEMI is, is fostering these spaces that allow for exploration. How, how do you um, reprogram, I guess, to use, you know, okay. A term that we, you know, use too much now, probably, but that 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 kind of mind to think in a more playful manner. Wow! If I if I had an, a good answer to that, I think <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, that would be fantastic. Um, I guess one thing I try to do with my students um, is to help them adopt more of a process orientation, and that can be really hard. I think. This is gonna this is gonna seem tangential, but I'll I'll pull it back together. Um, there's this great short clip of Ira Glass of This American Life talking about, you know, when you self-identify as a creative person and you kind of develop taste, it's threatening because you have a sense of how good you want your work to be, and everything you make falls short of it, and so you you know, you're there's this gap right between what you, what you know is good and what you like and what you can do. And I think that the way that that relates is at least in my students, they come in with an idea of what the end point is. And if you're starting from what you believe the end point should be, then it's harder to take that sort of, open-ended, iterative, playful approach. Um, And so getting them to not fall in love with their ideas so early, I think is really important. Um, Mm -hmm. But also, you know, recognizing that in in the, at least in the college context, there are a lot of constraints that are very stressful for them in terms of like having to deliver something on a particular date and having other coursework and all this kind of stuff. But, um, but I think, I think it's about helping people enjoy the process. And sometimes that could be as simple as just giving them an experience. You know, for me, I think a lot about the college context, giving them an experience in a class where they just get to play with something, you know, and it's like, okay, let me hand you a lump of clay or Play-Doh and make something in the next 10 minutes. I don't care what it is, but make something. And that process is necessarily going to be, there will be a bunch of them who say, wait, no, t- tell me what, what am I making? How will I know what I make is good? You know, you need to tell me what I'm making. Right. And then there'll be others who just start like fooling around, you know? And I think, um, giving permission is, uh, is really important. And especially at the, at the stage of sort of college because so much of the programming that they've gotten so far is about get the right answer and make sure you put a box around it. Um, and it's written in number two pencil on lined paper on right. with writing on one side. And, and, and that sounds almost absurd, but I can actually tell you that in some cases that is literally, those are little, literally instructions that students are getting in high school. Right. And so that design nature course that I talked about to kind of bring it back to that, it is a lot about deprogramming them from that. And, it, and you know, they, they sort of approach and they, so many of them will pitch their idea to me and then say, what do you think? Is that a good idea? <laughs> you know? Right, right. <laughs> and I have to say, like, 
I don't know. What do you think? You know, and then, and, and it, and I, and I can understand why that's frustrating for them, but, um, but I'd say, well, you tell me, you know, why you, why you think it's a good idea. Right. Right. Or you, you know, let's, let's prototype it out and see what happens instead of me saying, well, it's going to fail for the following reasons, you know? (laughs) Right. Right. It's, it's interesting. Like the, the, um, I, I see the same thing with, with our students is that they're, they're almost geared to take tests and tests have answers. And, and so, and, and they're, they're taught to get to the right answer as quickly as possible and that there's one right answer. Um, and, and so that's, that's one interesting challenge, but then in this, this process of, of getting them to rethink how to make things. So I'm going to be interviewing a couple people in the next couple of weeks. Um, one is Sasha Neary who runs uh, the Harold Washington Library Makerspace, which is like an excellent makerspace. Uh, you know, it's it's like one of the gold standard makerspaces in a library. I'm going to be interviewing Jeff Solon, who runs the makerspace at Lane Tech, which is a a really exemplary space in a in a uh, high school institution, and 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 some other folks as well. And and one central question that I think I'm going to be asking everybody, including you, is if we're if we're educating students, and it's not just about end product, but about process. Um, there's a challenge that I've I've noticed, which is assessing process. How mm. do you assess the process um, when you're asking a student to? Because if if a course is in in part about that, then at least in higher ed, there's some expectation that you're going to develop assessment tools around it. W- what have you done in the past, or what are some tools that you've used to to be able to do that while still um, keeping the focus on playfulness? I'm so I'm so glad we got to this because I've been thinking about this for so long. And I'm, I'm currently reading a book called Making, uh, Making Design Theory by Johan Redstrom. And, um, and nominally, his thesis is that making things can be the process of making theory and that we don't have to have arbitrary um, sort of tensions between theory and practice or form and function, but that the process of making is also the process of creating the theory. Um, and one of the, one of the points that he makes in the book is he talks about, I forget the name of the artist, but he's like, if you go to a gallery and you see the series of paintings, that's just to you, it's, it's blue squares. Every painting is a blue square, but there are, you know, 18 of them or however many, what the, the, the artist experienced in the process of making those paintings was an exploration of an idea, right? And maybe those squares vary in, in ways that were interesting that that artist was trying to get at understanding. But what you see is the is sort of like an artifact of that process. You don't experience that process. And maybe if you're really tuned in, you can kind of see the process a little bit, but it's very different. What the artist might be trying to communicate with you Right. or to you is very different from how you might actually perceive that artifact. Right. And so I've been, that really hit home for me because I do try very hard. I teach a, an introductory mechatronics course in the sophomore year where we tell students, you know, we are not grading the technical um, performance of your final project. And it's very hard for students to, I think, to hear that and to believe that. Um, and so I think creating different different sort of modalities of assessment that all ultimately depend on some representation um, because that's the nature of communication is important. So for example, in that course, we work uh, in an sort of agile framework called Scrum where every two weeks they, they complete what they call a sprint and they're required to have uh, an an increment of sort of an integrated product. And so in a mechatronics class, that's a mechanical subsystem, an electronic subsystem, and some firmware that that does something to integrate those things. And and at the end of those two weeks, they have to give a review, a sprint review to the the class, um, where they tell us, you know, how has the definition of their project changed in the last two weeks? You know, what is the latest definition of sort of like the minimum successful project? Um, what risks have they discovered? You know, what, how have they identified technical risk in their project? And, you know, how have they adjusted their process to account for that? Um, 
And so what we're grading there, you know, we're doing our best to grade their process, like their ability to assess risk and to change the scope of the project, you know, and it, and it kind of blows their mind when in the first review, they learn like, we can just cut all these features that we said we were going to put in because it's going to be too hard, you know? Right. And it's like, yes, you can, because you are learning. You are simultaneously learning a skill set and trying to apply that skill set to create something. It's what, what, what's interesting is that, you know, almost to f- bring this full circle, it seems very similar to when you were talking about your son observing an object and trying to understand the process that generated that thing. Only we're talking about people, <laughs> right? <laughs> and not the process that, that came to, to create the object, but the process that, that those students, or maybe it is that, that object and, and kind of understanding how a thing was generated, how an idea was generated. Um, based on some some complex system or something like that, I don't know what the connection is there, but it seems seems very um, too coincidental that, yeah. that in one hour those things were phrased. Yeah, no, that is that is a great point. Um, the other thing that is interesting is like teams also realize if they surface dysfunctional team dynamics in that review, they will do better. Right. You know, and that if they and if they hide dysfunctional team dynamics, they they won't do better. And so there is a little bit of Mm. like turning that lens on themselves as as teammates. Right. um, And addressing their their own shortcomings, you know, when it comes to their abilities to work together or their own areas of improvement. Um, So that it's it's cool that you you were kind of thinking about that with people and and. um, and the ways in which those kinds of re- reviews can help us observe, like like the tectonics of a of a of a people system, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. It's, it's holistic. It's it's not just the machines, but it's the people and their attitudes towards the the work that they're doing that influence the the ultimate outcome of of the project. Certainly, that's an IDEO concept as well, where IDEO is not just about. Um, you know, works st- the 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 administrative structure, but it's also about the environment that you work in and how that makes you feel about the work you're doing. And so there's there's some kind of a holistic approach there um, that that uh, they seem to have taken into account when they when they think about how they make things as well. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So um, we're bu- we're at an hour, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things I like to finish with is. Um, you know, just kind of uh, what are you what are you working on right now that you want other people to know about? Where should I point people at in the uh, in the show notes? Um, what should people come out to that you're doing, and uh, or or just some some other stuff sure. that you're interested in right now that you you want people to look at? Sure thing, yeah. So with the um, with the Higher Education Makerspaces Initiative Group, we're organizing the fourth um, International Symposium on Academic Makerspaces, or ISAM. It's going to be at Yale in October. Um, and so if folks search for, you know, ISAM makerspace on Google, they can, they can find the site for that. Um, so if people are interested in, in academic makerspaces and learning what's going on in that ecosystem and kind of what best practices are and, you know, just connecting to a group of people who I've just found to be really enjoyable to, to hang out with, um, they can check that out. Um, I have I have a woefully uh, under sort of populated blog at amhoov a m h o o v dot org, um, uh, where people can learn about the the digital joinery project I've been working on and kind of read my ramblings on craft and engineering education. But um, those are a couple of good spots, and then you know from there I'm sure people can uncover other other various things. But uh, those are probably two of the things that I'm working on the most right now. Sure. Yeah, I can attest to you. You are highly internet stockable. So if people want to <laughs> find out what you're doing, <laughs> it's, it's not guess. too hard. <laughs> right. Yeah, excellent, I guess. Right. I know it sounds creepy, but it's not illegal. So, uh, <laughs> um, so uh, Aaron Hoover, thank you so much for, for coming on This Should Work. I really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed our, our, our conversation. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. I, I, yeah, it's fantastic having this conversation with you, and you've given me all kinds of new ideas to to, <laughs> to ponder. Fun, hopefully, good ones. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and that about wraps it up for episode eighteen and our first episode that kicks off our educational makerspaces series. Big thanks to Aaron Hoover from Olin College for joining us. 
and I hope you all enjoyed this interview as much as I did. For more episodes, please check us out on our website at sugarworkmedia.com or subscribe to us on any of the above channels, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud. We're everywhere now. So uh, check us out and hope to see you next time. All right. Thanks. Bye.